Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for the freedom we have to gather and to worship you. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom we have to hear your word read and proclaimed, to study it and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of you. We ask now, Lord, that your spirit would take your word and make it live in our hearts and minds. Change us, challenge us, encourage us, convict us, teach us, we pray, by your spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Mark's going to read the scripture for us this morning. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down... Note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, As surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back into town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything that Boaz had done for her, and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is the word of the Lord. God. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Nan Clark. I am a pastor here for Care Ministries. Uh, 
So we've been um, looking at the Old Testament book of Ruth over the past several weeks, and each week we've been asking the same question. What does it mean, what does it look like to love like God? To love like God loves. We've seen that the Hebrew word for God's love, often used in the Old Testament, is hesed. Unfortunately, there's no single English word that captures the full meaning of hesed. In Ruth, hesed occurs three times, and it's always translated as kindness. It describes a deep loyalty or commitment to another person. In the first two chapters, we've seen how this kind of love suffers, <clears throat> excuse me, commits, works, protects, and provides. Today, we'll look at how love risks, how it is willing to bear extraordinary costs in terms of one's sense of well-being, one's reputation, or one's pocketbook for the well-being or the shalom of another. <clears throat> but before we look at the passage, I just want to give you two warnings. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> First, in order to understand this passage, we're going to have to dig a little bit into an ancient culture that's quite unfamiliar to us. And it's a culture in which women are sometimes treated like property. Secondly, in the original language, this passage contains sexual ambiguity and innuendo that we can't ignore. So yes, the little white-haired church lady is going to have to skirt the edges of PG-13. <laughs> so let's begin by looking at this very different cultural context. In ancient Israel, the land was the basis of economic stability and well-being for each family and clan. There were two possible ways a family could lose their land. They might have to sell it out of economic necessity. Or if a father died without a son to inherit his land, it would be absorbed into a relative's land when his widow died. Moses had instituted two customs to ensure that the land would stay in the family. In the event of a forced sale, a close relative called a guardian redeemer had a legal obligation to buy the land and return it to the family. Elimelech had probably leased his land when he left Bethlehem to go to Moab. But now Naomi is destitute and she has to sell it. She needs a guardian redeemer to buy the land back for her. In the case of a man dying with no son to inherit the property, his brother, who would be called a lever, had a moral obligation to marry his widow. And that often meant he was committing polygamy, but that was okay. Um, and so what Ruth needs is a lever. And whether you were a guardian redeemer or a lever, the goal was always to keep the land in the family to maintain familial and economic stability for that family, but also for the wider people as well. But both these obligations were costly. 
The guardian redeemer had to pay for the land out of his own resources. This diminished his estates, his estate, so that his own sons would inherit less when he died. Similarly, if the lever married his brother's widow, he would forgo the possibility of inheriting that land when the widow died. He also bore the cost of supporting the widow and her son. And sometimes it caused complications within the family as well, jealousy and all sorts of fun stuff. So these customs, they seem odd to us, but what they really speak to very clearly is the reality of living in a broken world in that day and the importance of God's people caring for one another as a reflection of how God had cared for them. And so these provisions, the love, the lever at marriage, and the guardian redeemer form the context for the expression of a costly hesed that shapes the actions of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. So let's look at Naomi first. In chapter one, we know she came back to Bethlehem bitter and empty. Her hope for any future had died with the death of her husband and her two sons. But in chapter two, when Ruth comes home from gleaning in Boaz's fields, things start to change. Boaz has protected and provided for Ruth. And this is evidence to Naomi that God has not forgotten her. The sign of God's kindness or hesed, begins to move Naomi from preoccupation with her own emptiness to a concern for Ruth's future. She knows that when she dies, Ruth will be even more vulnerable. She'll be alone, she'll be a widow, and she'll be a foreigner. So Naomi hatches a plan. She's aware that Boaz is not the nearest guardian redeemer, and so he has no legal obligation to redeem her land. But he could function as a lever and marry Ruth. Naomi knows that Ruth is barren. She didn't have any children during the year she was married, so it's unlikely they would have a son, but she may be thinking, given Boaz's age, it's not that important an issue anyways. So at the very least, Ruth would find permanent protection in the household of an honorable man. What I love about Naomi's plan is is that it shows her taking a risk to trust God again. There are all sorts of ways the plan can go awry. And she has to work it in a way that spares Boaz any public embarrassment. But what is so beautiful and what we see is her motivation. Once lost in her own despair, now she's willing to take a risk to ensure Ruth's future safety. At great risk to herself, Ruth agrees to the plan. She washes, she puts on perfume, and dresses in her best clothes. She's going to propose to this man, to Boaz, and she doesn't want to do that dressed in her dirty, smelly, sweaty work clothes. 
Then, under cover of darkness, she goes to the threshing floor. Boaz is there because he and his workers are winnowing barley. So winnowing's hard work. The workers take big pitchforks, they throw it up in the air, and the wind blows away the lighter parts of the um, plant, and the grain falls to the ground because it's heavier, and so they can pick it up and use it for whatever they're going to use it for. Ruth waits uh, unseen while Boaz and his workers celebrate the job well done. They're eating and drinking after their hard work. From her hiding place, she carefully watches where Boaz goes to sleep. Then she sneaks over, uncovers his feet, and lies down near him. Clearly, Ruth is taking a lot of risk here. She is in a very unsafe place, alone with a man at night and lying at his naked feet. Added to the tension is the sexual innuendo in the Hebrew that's lost for us in the English translation. But I think the author is very intentional about this. He wants his readers and audience, he wants us to feel the tension that's there. He wants us to know that there's a real temptation for Ruth and Boaz. But he's also given us throughout the first two chapters of the story lots of evidence of the character of Ruth and Boaz so that we can also believe that they'll act in a way that's consistent with that character. And that's exactly what they do. In the middle of the night, something startles Boaz and he wakes up. I think it's another one of those just-so-happened moments that Corey talked about last week. And he's shocked to find a woman at his feet. Who are you? He asks. Ruth identifies herself as his servant. But now she veers from Naomi's script. Instead of waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do, Ruth boldly takes the initiative. She ups the ante and asks for more than a lever at marriage. She tells Boaz that he's a guardian redeemer of their family, challenging him to be that for them. She is asking him not only to marry her, but to go the second mile and redeem Elimelech's land and family. Naomi has taken the risk to trust God for Ruth's sake, but in a surprising twist, Ruth risks her life, her reputation, and the humiliation of possible rejection for the sake of her Israelite family. And we see that same kind of willingness to risk for another, for another's good in Boaz, too. Boaz assures Ruth that she's not in any danger. He knows the risk that she's taking. He understands that it's not for herself. It's hesed. It's the same kindness and loyalty that drove Ruth to leave her homeland and family and now drives her to seek the well-being of her new family. And we also learn why Boaz has not acted sooner. He assumed that Ruth would prefer a young man, even a poor one, to the older Boaz. But he's also underestimated 
the commitment, the commitment of this young Moabite woman that she has made to bind herself to Naomi's God and his people. There's just one problem. There is a guardian redeemer closer than Boaz, and he has the first right of refusal to redeem the land. If this man refuses Boaz promises, he will do it. Since it is unsafe for Ruth to return home, Boaz tells her to stay the rest of the night on the threshing floor. I can't imagine that any, either of them got much sleep. Ruth's adrenaline must still be pumping, even though she knows she's safe now. Boaz is perhaps thinking about the risk he's taking. If anyone finds out Ruth is here, they'll assume the worst and my reputation will be ruined. What will people think about my marrying a Moabitess? Ruth is barren. Will people think I'm crazy? And how will this diminish the value of my estate? And what if the closer kinsman or guardian opts to redeem? But he's determined to pursue his course of action to show kindness or has said to Ruth and her family. His promise to Ruth will cost him, but the security and well-being for Ruth and Naomi are worth the cost. Before daybreak, Boaz sends Ruth home. I don't imagine Naomi slept much that night either. <laughs> She's dying to know what happened on the threshing floor. <laughs> More than she could have hoped. Marriage and land. And the icing on the cake, Boaz's gift of barley, so that Ruth would not go back to Naomi empty-handed a tender reminder that Naomi was right to risk trusting God. Boaz will not only provide for Ruth, he will also be the means of Naomi's return from emptiness to fullness. Truly, God has not forgotten Naomi's little family in Bethlehem. So, love risks. Hesed is costly. To secure a, a future for Ruth, Naomi takes a risk to let go of her bitterness and trust again. To secure a future for Elimelech's family, Ruth risks her physical safety, her reputation, and possible rejection and humiliation. To redeem two widows, their dead husbands, and their land, Boaz risks his good name and his resources. So let's just step back for a minute and think about how the original Hebrews might have heard and understood this part of our story. Just a reminder that this story of Ruth takes place in a time in Israel's history that was marked by violence and lawlessness. The writer of Judges describes it this way. It was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The risks that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz are willing to take for others' well-being stand out as a reminder for that original audience that not everyone in Israel had forsaken covenant faithfulness. There still were some who were not just doing what was right in their own eyes. And that's always been the case. 
Their acts of kindness are also a call to the ancient Israelites to be people whose whose love for the well-being or shalom of others leads them to take risks to their own well-being and safety. And don't miss the irony here. In a culture where women were often treated like property, it's through the example of these three people, two of them are women, and one of them's a foreign woman. It's through their example that God is calling his people to the kind of love that reflects his own character. So love risks. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz still call us today to a kind of costly love that takes risks for another shalom. Perhaps you identify with Naomi your, your experience have made you bitter or disappointed. Is God asking you to, to risk trusting him again today? Or are you more like Ruth? Where might God be asking you to risk more than you feel safe doing for someone else's good? Or maybe you're like Boaz. Where might God be showing you an opportunity to care for someone who has no other means of help. As we respond to God's word today, I'm tempted to identify two or three things for you to do. But I was struck last week when Corey reminded us how God works in the ordinary, everyday events of our lives. <clears throat> there are as many, <clears throat> excuse me, there are as many ways to respond as there are people in this room. Love that risks will find an opportunity every day in our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, the grocery store, everywhere we are. All we need to do is be open to it. But if anything, the call to costly, risky love is greater for us than it was for Naomi, or for Ruth, or Boaz. We've been the recipients of God's sacrificial love in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is our true kinsman redeemer. He emptied himself. He took on human flesh. He became one of us, our brother so that he could buy us back for God. Listen again to the words we sang just a few moments ago. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. You laid down your life that I would be set free. No wonder we sing for all that he has done for us, for his hesed, for his sacrificial love, his costly gift of his own life. And he calls us to that same kind of love, a costly love, a love that risks for others. And that's why Paul writes, in Ephesians 3, 
He tells us to be imitators of God. And how do we know? What does it mean to imitate God? What does it mean to love like God loves? Walk in love as Christ loved us. He's our example. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. May we be a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Before we pray, I'd just like to take a moment or two for us to be silent and for you to listen to the Holy Spirit and for how God might be speaking to you, encouraging you, convicting you, leading you to take a risk. So let's just have a moment of silence before I pray. Father, your love is not self-serving. We see your love most clearly in Jesus, our true guardian redeemer, whose self-giving love brings us healing and wholeness, forgiveness and freedom, peace and hope. Would you deepen our understanding of your love so that it drives us to risk loving others for their shalom. We ask in Jesus' special and precious name, amen.